And I'm going to now open up God's Word for us from 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, please open up so you can follow along with me. It'll also come on the screen. Uh, But we are waiting for this great king to return. And uh, Nigel's going to pick up a little bit of that from this passage this evening. But 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The man, the man, the man fled from the battle. The man fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died. Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. It ha- I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and I was there, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down, and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Eshkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terrace fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, 
Weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Well, have you got a long-term project with long-term goals? Uh, you know, the sort of thing that you've been working on for days, weeks, months, even years. The sort of project that you have a very high commitment to completing, but a very low commitment to completing today. Uh, perhaps you've got a puzzle that you took out, you or your family, and put on the dining room table at the start of lockdown back in June, and you've done the border, and you've done a few other bits and pieces, but the rest is yet to come. But perhaps in the corner of your bedroom, there's a little blue bag that is filled with photos from your trip to Thailand in 1997. At one day, those photos will become the most delightful album. I was foolish enough to ask one of my children if they were aware of any of my long-term projects. And quick as a wink, one of them came back with three or four things that were, in essence, promises that I'd made sometime before 2010, including the repair of a little plastic necklace that I think one of them made at preschool. Uh, I am sure some of you are get-things-done sort of people. But many of us are get-things-done-soon sort of people. Well, as we open up 2 Samuel tonight, we open up to chapter 1, where there is a series of get-things-done-soon scenarios. Uh, but all three things we're going to see tonight are drawing to completion. There's actually three long-term projects here that are crashing together. And we're going to look at each of them in turn. And as we do, we're going to get a deep insight into 2 Samuel, into ourselves, and into our God. So let's get stuck in and look at the first one. And that is God's long-term project for his people. Now, as we start off in 2 Samuel today, it's important to note that you can't just pick up an Old Testament book and read it without paying attention to its place in the biblical story, which is God's long-term plan for his people. Indeed, the whole of the Old Testament is one story. And just reading a book without understanding its place in the history, in the story of the Old Testament, is like picking up Harry Potter, book 3, chapter 17, and starting there and thinking you'll understand everything about Harry Potter and what's going on at Hogwarts. So we're going to start tonight by reminding ourselves of God's long-term project and where 2 Samuel fits in. So let's start at the start. Our God created Adam and Eve. He placed them in the Garden of Eden to live in it and to live in relationship with him and each other. Uh, to be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And that was God's goal for the world and us humans uh, living in it. Uh, but it all went pear-shaped, or you might say apple-shaped, uh, when they were expelled from the garden because of their sin. But their sin didn't stop God's plan. And their sin didn't make God give up on his plan. Now, he remained determined to rid the world of sin 
and to bring his people into his place to live under his blessing and rule. And many years later, God chose Abraham, therefore, and took Abraham and his family to a new land and made a promise to him in Genesis 12, which is a really significant chapter in the Bible and well worth you having a read of. But the promise to Abraham was that through his descendants, all people in the world would be blessed and that God's people would be made into a great nation and would be placed in God's place again to live under God's blessing and rule. So from the time of Abraham forward, as readers of the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through, we're looking for the fulfillment of God's plan. We're looking for a leader who will bring blessing to the nation of Israel. We're looking for a leader who will bring forgiveness and hope to this nation. And so from generation to generation, we follow the story from Abraham to his son Isaac and his son Jacob through to Moses and Joshua. And with each one of these leaders, we're asking ourselves as we read through the Bible, will this be the one? Will this be the person who brings the story to fruition, who finishes God's long-term plan to bring his people back into his place under his rule and blessing? But the answer we consistently see, chapter after chapter and book after book, is no. These rulers all failed to complete the task and God's long-term plan remains. But the sinfulness of humanity hinders the plan at almost every point. Well, this takes us up to the start of the book of 1 Samuel. And the start of 1 Samuel, Saul is appointed as the first king of Israel. And there is great anticipation with the appointment of Saul, a tall, strong man, that he might be the one to lead the people to glory. Because we're told that there is no one like him among all the people in Israel. And while that may be true, well, we soon discover that he is worse than many of the previous leaders. Indeed, Saul rejects the word of the Lord. And so the Lord rejects Saul as king. And almost immediately as that happens, we hear who the next king will be. He's the youngest and shortest son of a man called Jesse, who this young man was glowing with health, we're told had a fine appearance and handsome features. And his name is David. And David begins to serve Saul as a king in waiting. And David wins victory after victory against the enemies of God and shows himself consistently to be powerful and faithful and honourable. And as readers of the Old Testament, the first words of 2 Samuel, therefore, evoke incredible anticipation for us because we're about to find out whether this man, David, might finally be the king who will fulfill God's long-term plan for his people. Will David be the one who will bring God's people back into God's place and bring them under God's rule and blessing? For we know from the very first verse, that everything in 2 Samuel takes place after the death of Saul. 
So our study in 2 Samuel is going to answer that question. I'm not going to issue any spoilers as to what's going to happen. Uh, But at this very moment, we find ourselves squarely at the foot of the second project that I want to draw our attention to tonight. It appears to be coming to completion, and that is the announcement of David as king. For if Saul is dead, then David will be king. But as 2 Samuel opens, we have knowledge that David doesn't have. In fact, we know how Saul died. Uh, 1 Samuel 31 tells us that as a a battle intensified, uh, the army of the Philistines broke through the ranks of Israel and they came for Saul and they came for Saul's sons. And so we read in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 31 from verse 3 these words. The fighting grew fierce around Saul and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. As Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through. Or these circumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So the mighty King Saul, who was the subject of so much expectation, dies an unkingly end that really is fitting for the ungodly king he was. But as 2 Samuel opens, David knows nothing of it. In fact, we're told in verse 1 that he's been fighting and then stayed in Ziklag for two days. Saul's leadership has finally failed. And as the sun rises on the third day, we might ask ourselves, is there hope for Israel in this new king? Is there hope for the world that's going to come through David? Will hope rise on the third day? And perhaps even in that contemplation at the start of verse 2 there you hear echoes of the future in this moment but what we want to look at is the story of David's kingship that's rising when on the third day a man arrives from the battleground he pays David great honor and then he brings the news that we already know in verse 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 1 we read the men fled from the battle many of them fell and died and Saul And his son, Jonathan, are dead. Now, David now knows what we know. And we might expect the narrator to move now to David's response to this news. But instead, David leans into the story. It's like he wants to know more. Perhaps it's this man's manner or tone that was just out. We don't know, but he asks for more information. And this is what David is told from verse 6. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. There was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. Uh, When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. And so this young man speaking to David says, 
So I stood beside him and I killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Well, now we've got a problem, don't we? Suddenly we find ourselves in the position of a primary school principal who's dealing with two year five boys who have different versions of a certain story. We've got different versions of the death of Saul going on here in two consecutive chapters. Two versions of truth. And here's David grieving the death of Saul that's been brought to him in a pack of lies. Yes, Saul is dead. But this man who's just arrived is proudly claiming to be the cause of his demise. Indeed, this man has presented David with the news that his predecessor is dead and given him the crown and given him the royal band. Essentially, this man is crowning David as king and even calls David at the end of verse 10, my Lord. So David mourns and weeps and fasts till evening and the lie just hangs in the air. And while it does, let's consider its purpose. For the Amalekite told his story in such a way as to make himself the hero, didn't he? Everyone knew Saul hated David and wanted to kill David. And now this man is claiming to have killed David's enemy, no doubt to secure David's favour. Perhaps he thinks that he'll get some reward from David or a senior position in David's council or government. Perhaps he thinks he'll get public honours for handing over the very crown and securing the leadership of Israel for the future. And it looks dead set like the Amalekite is following the law of self-interest, using lies and deception to win favour with the king. But the problem is that this man who's come with crown and band in hand does not understand David. David has mourned not only for his personal loss, but for the loss to Israel and the loss to God's kingdom. He's, he's not merely consumed with the personal loss of his best friend Jonathan. No, David is a man who has a heart like the Lord, a heart that weeps for enemies, and a heart that weeps over the kingdom and even weeps over a failed king of God's kingdom. David's heart runs contrary to what the Amalekite expected. He anticipated that David would hear the news and rejoice that, that he is therefore going to be appointed as king, that he is gaining something out of this. But nothing could be further from the truth. For this man, David, lives in service of others. He lives for the glory of the king and the glory of God. And yes, though he was to become king, he did not consider equality with Saul something to be grasped for his own advantage. No, David took the very nature of a servant. And part of his role of serving God and his kingdom is honouring truth. And so he returns 
to question the liar. Look at verse 13. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? He said, I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. And David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now we, of course, know what the armor bearer who was with Saul did. He refused to run Saul through because of fear. But this Amalekite man has proclaimed both his fearlessness and therefore also his godlessness. For Saul, despite his failings, was still the Lord's king and no man has the right to take his life, a fact that David knew and lived by. So what's interesting here is the Amalekite is not caught in his lie. He's actually caught by his lie. And he's struck down for seeking to gain that which was never his to have through a story that was never his to tell. Now, now this little story has twists and turns, doesn't it? But the point we take from it is clear. Don't be deluded into thinking that you can leverage personal gain from the kingdom of God. The content of the lie is what killed the Amalekite, but his self-seeking heart was what took him to that place. He was not seeking first the kingdom of God, but rather he was seeking first the kingdom of self, and he got exactly what was coming to him. And friends, this is the deceitfulness of sin. It places you and your desires above God and his glory. When sin rose in the heart of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. It desires to have you, God said to him, but you have to rule over it and master it, God said to him. And as the story goes, Cain failed. When sin rose in the heart of this Amalekite, he pursued his own agenda, his own kingdom, his own glory, and he failed. In the New Testament, when sin rose in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira and they kept money back from the apostles but testified they'd paid all the money they were meant to pay, they failed. And they are exposed as those who lie even to God. Friends, the Bible is filled with examples of the way that there is always a temptation in the heart of man to seek your own kingdom even in the service of God. To make people think well of you while you're making people think well of Jesus. To gain a strong reputation for yourself as you serve the Lord Jesus. To twist the truth and make yourself just look a little bit more shiny than you really are. And in his rejection of Saul as king, God says something to Samuel that we ought to take very carefully on board. And it's this. Is that God sees 
not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. And friends, it's the same with any sin, not just sin in the pursuit of the kingdom. And so James writes in James chapter 1, verse 14, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now we've started recruiting people for ministry roles for next year. And all I ask tonight of you is this, that if you're entertaining the idea that you might serve in children and youth next year, if you're entertaining the idea that you might serve as a growth group leader, if you're entertaining the idea that you might serve as a musician, as an ESL leader, perhaps if you're even entertaining the idea that you might be someone who is led by others, I only ask this of you. Examine your heart. Whose glory are you seeking through your ministry? Whose kingdom are you building through your ministry? Is there some sin creeping into your heart, into your life, into your thoughts that you just excuse and ignore? That really is just you justifying your own glory. God's king will always expose the truth of your heart. For this man, it was David. For you, it will be the Lord Jesus. A Jesus who said, seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus who said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So don't be so foolish as to think that Jesus is foolish enough to be fooled by a fool like you. Now, he will not reward godlessness. So don't fool yourself into thinking that he will. And don't be like the Amalekite. And this leads us back then to verse 2 and to the power of this king and the third of our long-term projects. And that is the defeat of the enemies of the people of God. In fact, we're going to look at verse 1. And you could easily miss it. But the main point of verse 1 is enormously significant for our understanding of this new king. Uh, look with me again at verse 1. It says this. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. David defeated the Amalekites. Now, there are so many weird people groups in the Old Testament. You would be excused for having your eyes glaze over at this point. Among all the ites that you can read about in the whole of the Old Testament, this is just another one of the ites, or it could be. Uh, but the Amalekites are significant for their long-term status as an enemy of God's people. 
Uh, We actually find them in Exodus chapter 17. As God's people are making their way out of Egypt, here are the Amalekites fighting against the people of God. And when Joshua overcomes them in that battle, the Lord says this to Moses in Exodus chapter 17 from verse 14. He says to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. There's a commitment here that is unusual. An enemy of God's people that needs defeating and actually defeating by the Lord. And any that needs booting out completely so the people of God will be at peace. And when Moses recalls this, when he preaches to a new generation of Israelites uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, Moses goes on and recollects this, saying this from Deuteronomy 25, from verse 17. He says, Remember that what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And when the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Again, underline for us here that it is God's work, that he is going to blot out this enemy in order to bring his people to rest. And then we meet these Amalekites again in the famous battle in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Saul was meant to wipe them out completely. Saul was meant to be the one who would completely wipe them away, but he failed to obey the word of the Lord. And so Samuel says to him in 1 Samuel 15 from verse 18, uh, Samuel says, Uh, that the Lord sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? See, Saul's failure to deal with the Amalekites when God told him to resulted in him losing the kingship and his personal ruin. Here is an enemy of God's people that keeps striking at their heel and striking at their heel. Here is an enemy of God's people who will not go away. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It is relentless and it is bringing death after death after death to the people of God. Victory after victory they claim. And you just wonder as you read the history of the Malachites through the whole of the Bible, is there any king who can bring a victory against this foe and then along comes David and in 1 Samuel chapter 30 we're told that David finds his strength in the Lord and that he reverses the failure of Saul and he deals with the Amalekites once for all Indeed, they never pose a threat to the people of God again because this new king, God's king, 
a surprising king, a man after God's own heart, did away with the enemy of God's people once and for all, bringing an amazing victory and complete peace from this relentless foe. And it's how the book of 2 Samuel starts. David defeated the Amalekites. Now you might be sitting at home today wondering, why is this so significant? Well, friends, we know, don't we, that Jesus says the whole of the Old Testament testifies to him. And he teaches his disciples on many occasions about all that was going to be fulfilled from the Old Testament about him. And so I wonder, as we see the story of David and the Amalekites, if you see a prelude to Jesus here, an echo of Jesus, a precursor, something that points to the awesomeness of Jesus. Do you see a better king? God's king, a surprising king, a man after God's own heart, doing away with an enemy of God's people once and for all, bringing victory and peace from a relentless foe. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verse 55, and he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The victory of this better king is not just over one enemy, but the last enemy, even death. The victory of this better king does not just bring temporary rest to the land, but eternal rest for all. The victory of this better king is not just for his people, but for all people. And if you've been living like that sinful Amalekite, don't be a fool. The standard of godliness God calls us to as leaders and those who will be led is so high. But his triumph over sin and death is so deep and his forgiveness and mercy so wide that it is is sufficient for you as his blood flows from the cross. Sin does not need to have mastery over you when you know the King. And so David's victory over the Amalekites is amazing. But the victory of the better king is a better victory. And on the third day when he emerges, not from Ziklag, but from the grave, hope rises eternal because he is the king who never fails to provide for his people in life or in death. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your love and mercy that is toward us in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that he has come as the better king 
who has brought victory over all our enemies, including the last enemy death, who has brought us eternal rest and done that not just for one group of people, but for all people through his death at the cross. And our Lord and God, we praise you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Oh, hello and uh, welcome back. Sorry, we were just chatting on the couch. <laughs> Weren't looking at the screen. Well, we have uh, lots of questions coming in on the Slido. You can see the link there, Slido uh, CCS Knights. Uh, now, Nigel, we're just going to jump into the questions. Go for it. Excellent. Okay, we've got a great question from Sarah. Uh, Sarah asks, uh, how can we deeply love and grieve for people that are against us, like David does for Saul? Yeah. Uh, this is a really great question, and I think uh, David is a really great uh, example of someone, uh, if you go back and read through 1 Samuel, who has someone who is a concerted enemy who keeps being against him time and time and time again, but, uh, but remains faithful to the Lord. I'd say three things, uh, and I, I have uh, some people who are pretty constant in their opposition uh, to me and the gospel, um, and there are three things that I'd encourage you to do. The first thing is to pray for them. I think it's really hard to have your heart uh, hardened and turned against someone in anger uh, if you're praying for that person and praying that that person might become a believer. Uh, I think that's really important. Secondly, I think use the scriptures to actually articulate your words and feelings. So uh, you can open up some of the Psalms and read Psalms when David is being chased and afflicted uh, by people and allow those words in the Psalms to actually become your words and your prayers uh, for that moment. And then the third thing that I would say is a little bit different, but uh, it's actually okay for you not to place yourself in the firing line of opposition all the time. Uh, I have one gentleman who consistently emails me, uh, abusive emails, uh, telling me that uh, I believe in fairy stories and I need to get a new job. Uh, and it would be entirely okay for me to actually block his email. And I think that would be fine to send him a courteous and kind email saying, this has been a lovely interaction over the last 20 years, but I'm done now, uh, and then to block him. I don't think we actually need to place ourselves in the, in the way of opposition purposefully to be authentically Christian. So uh, I think that's a judgment call that you need to make. Uh, and sometimes actually removing yourself from a situation where it is acutely and aggressively against you as an enemy actually might enable you for a season to learn to love that person again. So there's three little suggestions. I think that was four because you squeezed one in. And, oh, yeah, did I? Yeah, yeah but oh, that's well, all right. It was we, a subclause. No, one, sub no, one, no one was counting. Uh, Aaron also asked a great question, and I like this question because it's a serving-related question. Uh, so <laughs> you, Aaron, you should answer this question. Shall I ask Well, no, no, no. I'm going to throw <laughs> it straight to you. Uh, Aaron asks, uh, how do we keep our hearts fixed on Jesus while serving? Mm. so that it doesn't sway to becoming selfish? Yeah, uh, excellent question. And I, I love, this is uh, Aaron, who is my Kidspace leader. Uh, I love serving on Kidspace with Aaron. Uh, let me tell you uh, two things that I've learned from Aaron about this, uh, which I think is excellent. Um, one is, your prayer in preparation for your ministry ought not be just for yourself. Mm. And it ought not be just perfunctory. There's a word for you. Perfunctory. That's a lots of syllables. It ought to be short and shabby. There you go. That's what that means. <laughs> Make your prayers uh, solid prayers 
for the people you're ministering to and for God to work through you as his vessel in that moment. Uh, I think that that's a really important sort of thing to do. And, and Aaron's great at that. He does not like the kids-based team on a Friday afternoon getting away with shabby prayers, and I really appreciate that. Good on you, Aaron. Uh, I think afterwards, after you're involved in ministry then, uh, there, there is... Uh, I, I read an article this week that was really helpful. Is Often when you minister to people, people will say to you, thank you so much for that. And it's very easy to be like... You know, shining your own halo in that moment. But actually learn to turn someone's thankfulness towards you actually into a thankfulness to God. I think it's okay for people to be thanked for the ministry they're doing, but that as you are thanked, uh, that, that you don't then take that on board for yourself, but you actually say, how awesome is God that he has used a weak vessel like me to move you in that way tonight? And so to see yourself as that conduit or that pathway for God to be working through, that it's God working through you for that person's learning and for God's glory. And as you see yourself in that way, you can give thanks that God is using you, but your thanks is to God himself. And so I think that that's helpful. If I sneak a third in, because I said to, uh, a third thing is, I think to reflect on the work that God is doing in the ministry and to yourself give praise to God in that as well. What that means is you actually can't do ministry quickly yeah. you actually need to pray well in advance yeah. to reflect well in the end and, and and that's part of why we don't like people doing 20 different ministries at church because sure you might have time for all of the single events but actually for proper self-preparation and ministry preparation and reflection and bringing the glory to god tim that takes time doesn't it it does take time it does take time and Nigel, i remember when i was starting out at mts you know when you're young and naive you think oh this is pretty easy but god teaches you very quickly <laughs> and over a long period of time that actually you are that conduit uh through which uh he chooses to act and that that weak vessel yeah and i think the longer one goes in, in ministry and serving god the more we realize our weaknesses but then we are glorifying his strength through that weakness i sense that we're going to hear some stories from you about this in due course and i'm looking forward to that we may indeed, indeed. hey i'll be uh on Sermon Extra live uh, Tuesday afternoon at some stage. So look out for that. And I look forward to answering the other questions that are in Slido on Tuesday afternoon. Excellent. And that uh, Sermon Extra is going to be happening on uh, Christchurch St. Ives members' Facebook page. So you can log on there on Tuesday afternoon and you can uh, hear the rest of the questions that Nigel hasn't got to answer uh, there.